Today we're on the sixth word to live by, and today's word to live by, so pause there. Doesn't that kind of sound like Sesame Street? Like, today's letter is E. Uh, anyway, I just something that rolled in my head this week, and I had to include it as maybe something that you'll think about now, and maybe it'll be a thing that you'll remember the words in this series with. But today's word to live by is all about one of the most popular things that we like to do to pass our time now. You know, it'd be a healthy thing, but it's something we do often, or at least myself, I'll speak for myself, is TV watching. Well, maybe it's not all about that, the word today, but a particular type of TV is a good example of how this sixth word is commonly understood. And that genre is reality TV. Now, I don't know what your main TV show is to watch or what your favorite bingeable series on Netflix may be, but I know that if any reality TV show is kind of premiered, it doesn't take very long for it to jump to the top 10 in Canada list on Netflix. So why do we think that's the case? Well, there's many factors. We are pretty impressionable people. So when something is number one, it means that people are watching it, so why aren't we watching it? That helps to feed the number one status. We're inquisitive, so why is it number one? Let's find out. Maybe we're just looking for an easy watching show, nothing too heavy. Or another reason that's not often shared, but is probably thought about in your head if you actually take time to process it, is we want to feel uplifted. Now, that's not a common understanding, probably, for why you watch reality TV, but it is because at least we are not as bad or as crazy or as shallow or whatever other descriptor you want to use as the person in that reality TV show. Think about the reality TV shows that are out there. There's the, I think the first one I ever can remember is The Housewives of Orange County. <laughs> that was like a, well, I'm, I'm definitely not that bad kind of show, right? And then I guess Survivor is one of those things. Well, I'm not, you know, stuck like that guy is. Then there's the endless list of TV shows about people being interviewed with their life problems. Back in the day, this is a reference for the older crowd here maybe, Jerry Springer, is that a familiar thing? Oof, that's not a great thing, but you're better off than those people. And then there's all the house organizing shows, my house isn't that messy. And then not to mention the endless list of dating shows that are out there and you're like, Phew, my dating life is not that bad. So. Most of these shows provide situational comparisons for us in a way to actually uplift ourselves by being able to see that we are at least not that bad. Or, at least I haven't done that. Well, as we continue in this series today of 10 words to live by, this sixth word, and the sixth word is actually the shortest of all the commandments here at just two Hebrew words total, none of these commandments so far actually reveal that the intended audience was in any way, shape, or form able to uphold these commands. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They were missing the mark on all these words to live by so far, hence why God gave them. Take the sixth word and simply read it, and it is so obvious that what is being asked should be easy enough to, at minimum, accomplish the task. It is what I would call the reality TV word to live by. Or even better, the at least I'm not that bad, or at least I haven't done that word to live by, if that helps you remember this one a little bit more. But before we continue on, let's quickly review the words that we've covered so far. So first, 
we have no other gods. Then we have no idols. Then we covered an untarnished name of God. The longest one that we covered was actually remember the Sabbath in length. It had the most words given to it. And last week's word was on honoring elders. Now the first four in this list, and some argue the first five, are all commands focusing on a vertical relationship in our lives. Relationship with God or those in authority over us. Now, the sixth word is where all these scholars finally come into agreement, at least, that the focus shifts to a horizontal perspective in these relationships. It addresses how we need to interact with those who are just like us, on the same playing field. And that will be the focus, actually, of the rest of the words in this series. And these words are essential because they are focused on places we can get extra complacent in how we think, places we can get extra complacent in how we speak, and we can get extra complacent even in how we act with those who are just like us. Now, these are the relationships where we sometimes also feel like honor doesn't necessarily need to enter into the discussion. So, let's assume that no one up to this point has looked ahead at all in their Bible ever before, and y'all don't know what the sixth word is. And maybe some of you don't. And so now we can ask that question that you're all kind of thinking, well, what is this sixth word? Well, the sixth word is this, loratsa. That's it. That's what the sixth word is. You understand completely now, right? It's super simple, just two words. What it is in English is actually, you shall not murder. That is the entirety of the verse. That is all the details we are given in the text that we're talking about today at least directly, and as we will see, there was a pretty early example of why this needed to be out there found in the book of Genesis. It's also interesting to note that this is the literary polar opposite of the fourth command that is given. It is the shortest one, and it is focused on one of the worst possible actions humans could make, whereas the longest one is focused on rest and worship to God. found that quite interesting. So, This is pretty easy to follow, right? Why even include it? Well, this is why I dubbed it the reality TV word to live by. Why even need reality TV? As long as we don't look like that murderer on that show, then we're living our holiest life, right? It's easily upholdable. That was what the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the day, that was their understanding on this matter. It seems like the easiest thing to uphold. And it's not a new command, it was actually ancient Near Eastern culture's common knowledge, and pretty much our common knowledge today, that murder is a bad thing. So if it's so easy to understand, and it was already commonly known, it must have needed to be included in these ten words, even though it was already known. There must have been a reason. And that's because God had already experienced humans seeing other humans as expendable when it fits their desires. That's the story from Genesis 4 where we're going to read from today. So if you want to flip there, it's right at the beginning of your Bibles. Genesis 4, we're going to read verses 2 through 9. I'm going to start about halfway through verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, 
from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? We see in this passage the story of a sibling rivalry that leads to the act of murder, the pre-planned killing of Abel by Cain. There's nothing obvious, though, listed in the story outside of the displeasure in his offering where we see a logical progression of Cain's anger to the point of murder. So let's walk through this example and try to glean a little bit more and maybe see how Cain got to such a point of anger that he had to kill his brother. So let's start at the end, where we see Cain acting on or gratifying his anger in killing his brother. Now, the skeptic, or maybe even your mind, will immediately draw our attention to other instances in the Bible where God orders or allows the killing of others. And they may say something like this, God allows the killing of people, so what's the difference here in this command? It seems like a double standard. Plus, what about the killing done in biblical times during wars? Is that not the same thing? What we read in Genesis 4 is very different than the other instances raised in those previous questions. Firstly, the word ratza in Exodus 20, in the commandment found in 2013, is used never in the context of war in the Hebrew text, revealing a distinction between killing during war under orders of others in authority or by hearing directly from God to the context that we have here. Ratza is a word that is used in the context of human interactions only, when they start to take it upon themselves to deal out punishment that isn't theirs to deal out, similar to what Cain did here. The reason there's a distinction between killing during war and killing under God's authority and murder here is because of the requirement of the shedding of blood that these actions and these instances actually have. Now, why is that significant? Well, blood is considered life in this time, and even now we understand that life for a human. The gift of life comes from God. So it's a gift given from God. Only God can remove that gift from someone else. It is not a decision made by those who have all equally that horizontal relationship received the gift of life. That distinguishment between killing and murder is key to understanding Cain here because it is definitely not the case that there was any war going on around or authority or that God commanded the killing of Abel. But it is the decision of Cain to remove the lifeblood from his brother. Now, the author of the book that this series that we're walking through is based on, Jen Wilkin, says this about Cain's actions. He, Cain, 
cannot strike down God, so he strikes down the one who resembles him. We are all made in the image of God, and so each time murder comes into the equation, we are not only attacking the image bearer right in front of us, but by association, we are also attacking the image, who is God in this instance. We have read about the end of the line, this murder act by Cain. We know that it is anger that led him to this point because it says that he's very angry in the text. But it is more than just anger that takes over when you get to the stage that Cain does. Anger is now feeding something worse. It's now feeding contempt. Dallas Willard, a biblical scholar, a favorite of mine actually, expanded upon the concept of contempt in this way. Contempt is a kind of studied degradation of another. It, and it also is more pervasive in life than anger, if we can think about it that way. It's more pervasive, meaning that it is more held in our hearts than anger. It is never justifiable or good. In contempt, I don't care if you were hurt or not, or at least so I say. You are not worth consideration one way or another. Contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them and see them further degraded. The intent and effect of contempt is always to exclude someone push them away, or leave them isolated. People like Cain here have indulged their anger and allowed it to turn into contempt for the other. And contempt is the human twisting of the negative emotion of anger to something that, as we just heard, is never justifiable or good. Always sinful contempt. And note that anger in and of itself is classified as a negative emotion, but it is not sinful in and of itself, but contempt always is. Cain progressed to the end of the line with this contempt and anger gratified in the act of murder. That is not the only path, though, for anger. We can stop it before it gets to contempt and gratified anger. Stopping just shy of the physical act of murder is basically the bare minimum we could do to uphold this sixth word. But we can do more than the bare minimum for this sixth word. We can begin to identify the steps leading to gratified anger in contempt by realizing when we actually begin to indulge our anger. This is the second stage of anger that we can see here, which is actually brought to light um, through Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, where Jesus is actually speaking to the Pharisees about the sixth word to live by. Now, the Pharisees were the kings of the bare minimum following and of the, at least I haven't done that when it came to following the commands of God. Jesus calls them out for this often in the text. They used comparison to others at all the the time when trying to figure out how to distinguish themselves horizontally from others and how they acted. But they were missing the heart of the sixth word. Jesus in Matthew 5 reveals to us yet again the heart behind the sixth commandment. So let's read in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. This is what it says. You have heard that it was said, 
one of Jesus' favorite lines when he's calling out the Pharisees. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, the commandment for today. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. From these verses, we're actually able to glean a few more things, a few more layers to this sixth word. First, holding to the bare minimum of not physically murdering anyone is not the heart of this word to live by. It's actually not the way of Jesus. Jesus reveals that the moral root for murder is actually anger by calling it out here. And anger, the natural negative emotion we all feel, is in response to a violation of wills, which in and of itself, again, is not sinful. But anger that is indulged does become sinful. Because it is anger pointed at another person for personal reasons, not for the purpose of defending God's honor. That is when anger, when it moves forward, can be not sinful. But typically it is a personal will that has been violated in our lives that causes us to indulge anger. And anger indulged is what we've seen in Cain. As a brother who succumbs to the perspective that Abel's life is less valuable than his. That that gift of life that God gave Abel is less valuable than the gift he gave Cain. And because of the violation of a personal will. Now, one of the additional layers to this sixth word that Jesus reveals here is when something is verbalized or made external, but not something that's actually like the physical action. The hurling of insults is kind of what he covers here. The insult in Matthew is actually um, not translated, in, in my perspective, probably because if they were to translate the word, you wouldn't be able to read it to your children, and you probably shouldn't read it yourself. Uh, in the footnotes of your Bible, it likely says that this is an Aramaic, the term raka is likely an Aramaic term of contempt. Who would have thought? A term of contempt. So if you were to literally translate that into a modern term, um, it would be like calling someone, if your imagination were to run wild, uh, the most derogatory term that you could possibly think of. It is way worse than calling somebody merely a fool. So this indulged anger of yelling raka has allowed someone to continue on the path towards contempt by actually verbalizing that contempt outside of themselves. And gratified anger in action in allowing themselves to get closer to the point where they'll actually no longer care about what happens to that other person. Jesus is revealing to the bare minimum follower adherent Pharisees that their approach to this command needs to change because the way you speak about other people reveals how you truly value that other person in many instances. If it's a negative or insulting, your penalty listed here is the same as a murderer. And we see this in Cain's response to God after killing Abel when God actually asked Cain, where's your brother Abel? He answers with a lie, I don't know. And then, with the words actually questioning why he should value or care about his brother at all, am I my brother's keeper? Jesus reveals a need to dig deeper and deeper into this sixth word 
more than merely upholding the need to not physically murder, but recognizing that anger is what will lead us down the path towards murder. And if we indulge it with our words, it is far too easy to then enter the stage where we physically act upon it, even to the point of murder. Action and speech have been addressed so far. But this sixth word needs to be taken even deeper to how we think. And, in other words, how we possibly even start to nurse our anger that we feel. Jesus is pointing us deeper still on this word to live by. Now, it can seem like Jesus may be constantly adding to the law when he refers back to any of these teachings. As you read through the gospel, it may seem, man, like, why didn't they just say that in the original? It looks like anger and contempt have been added to this sixth word, but that's not the case at all. Jesus is merely pointing to the seedling weeds that are there, that if left to grow, will actually choke out the good plants. What I mean by that is the negative emotion that is felt, anger, if it is nurtured in imagining negative things happening to other people, will turn into the anger that is built up to the point that it overflows out of your mouth into your speech. And then it can turn into the anger that when if left to build and build and build and build and build over time, will become contempt for others, which is the removing of caring for them and just draws you so much closer to the unholy action or even the perspective of, I hope something bad happens to that person, to the negative perspective of unholy action of murder. Can we see how Cain, who gave an offering to God, but didn't like that his brother's was favored over his, allowed that thought to fester. It began to reveal itself in his demeanor as his face was downcast. Then a plan happened in his mind. Then he acted on it. And after he acted upon it, he reveals a perspective that also externally, verbally questions the requirement to love his brother at all in this instance. Now, this is a somewhat removed example from our context today, obviously, but allow me to share a common thought progression I've encountered in my own life, but also in the lives of those that I've interacted with. So it goes something like this. Someone you meet has a differing perspective on something than you. Everybody experienced that here, yeah? You've experienced somebody with a differing perspective than you, right? You guys all think the Oilers are good, I think the Leafs are good, we differ greatly. Um, so, discussion happens. Right? Disagreement happens, right? McCabe is the best, Matthews is the best, blah, blah, blah. We get it, yeah. The words of agree to disagree are uttered by both parties. Regular life resumes after that. The same topic comes up around another person. I go talk to Mike Zizek, who's also a Leafs fan, and he affirms my perspective. And so you share the same perspective, and it's received well in that context. So you proceed to share that these other people, you know, differ in perspective. And you begin to jokingly mock their perspective. Then that fuels your position even more. You're more entrenched in your belief. The next interaction you have with the one who differs is a little less friendly. It's actually a verbal argument that happens. And once you are no longer around that person, you immediately reach out to the friend who is in agreement with you. And you begin to kind of insult them and joke about their perspective immediately without even giving context. Just because they disagree with you. Everybody kind of experienced this or at least seen it happen in the lives of those around you. It is easy to think 
that the one thought or that one little insult won't actually affect anyone. But truth is that it likely will affect them and it definitely will affect you in your heart. So let's read from Romans 13 again here as we see Paul outline again how this commandment is more than just a bare minimum one. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, read this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, and he lists a few here, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And that includes this sixth word. This passage reveals a stark call on our lives that these words to live by can be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. Origen said it this way, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. That's the heart of the teaching from this sixth word, love your neighbor. Not just don't hate your neighbor, not just non-action against someone, but active, continuous love for them. That's the point. Now, with all of that information in teaching on not murdering or on not holding contempt for others or on not nursing, indulging, or gratifying your anger coming from that shortest of those 10 words to live by in Exodus 20. What can we do with that information so that we don't enter into the same cycle of anger and contempt that Cain and the Pharisees entered into? How can we truly love our neighbor as ourselves? So here's a few ways to actively do more than just live in that reality TV mentality of, well, at least I'm not as bad as the murderer. So if these areas that we're about to mention, excuse me, become a focus for each of us, we will actually have the ability to avoid anger, contempt, and murder. And we will be able to actually not progress along that in a sinful way. So the first thing is be peacemakers. So actively seek out instances where peace needs to come into the situation and be the person to suggest an approach that goes counter our nature. We can do this because we have Jesus' example of being that ultimate peacemaker by going to the cross to bridge the gap between us and God and find a way for peace to truly rule in the end. By trying to pursue peacemaking and all of these conflicts in our life, we will actually begin to retrain our responses to the negative emotion of anger and allow us to still feel that emotion, but it point us towards peace. So be peacemakers is the first one. The second one is to be esteem givers. This counteracts that contempt. Actively seek out ways to not only uphold peace, but actively seek out ways to build up those fellow image bearers that we interact with. If our focus is to find what is being done well by others, then our ability to approach them with love and build them up 
will actually be far more likely than approaching them with contempt in our hearts and hurling insults. By focusing on esteem-giving words, we will again begin to retrain our natural response when we, experience, when we experience anger in our lives. So, peacemakers, esteem givers, and finally, be life protectors. Actively seek out ways to uphold life for others. Life protecting is not only what our first responders do, but it is what we are able to do in some of those little things as we seek out ways to serve our community and neighbors. It can be as simple as helping somebody who's in need of a drive, or maybe needs some clothes, or needs a full load of groceries, or whatever it may be. Those are all life-building things. And as we focus on how to meet the needs of our fellow image bearers with what God has given to each of us, we are actually able again to retrain our natural response of nursing, indulging, and finally gratifying our anger into acts that do the exact opposite and build up life. So today we've looked at this sixth word to live by, you shall not murder. And we have seen that this is an easy word to simply do the bare minimum of action for. Just don't murder somebody. Pretty simple. But now we know that Jesus calls us to more than the bare minimum. He always does. He calls us to actively be peacemakers, to actively be esteem givers, and to actively be life protectors. Amen. So, as we begin now to move towards a time of communion around the table, a time where we remember the sacrifice of Christ for us, the sacrifice that was peacemaking, that was esteem-giving, and was life-protecting in the most amazing way. Take this moment of silent reflection to examine your hearts for anger and contempt and offer that to God and ask him to remove it from your life so that peacemaking, esteem-giving, and the life-protecting love of God can fill you today. Please join me in a moment of reflection.